So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some graphic descriptions of war and also a brief discussion of suicide, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. Ever since he was a kid, Chris Kopp has wanted to be a soldier. I remember the day, 82, my mom bought the first G.I. Joe guy that had come out for me, and I was six years old at the time, and after that, there was nothing else that mattered in life. I had found, <laughs> found my focus. By the late 90s, he was enlisted in the army as an infantryman. If I was going to be a soldier, I was going to be a soldier and not somebody that supported the soldiers. I am going to be that tip of the spear. I'm going to do the dirty work. And the work was often dirty. Chris was part of the first battle group of Canadian soldiers to be deployed to Afghanistan. They arrived in Kandahar in February 2002. The first thing you notice is the smell. It's an immature theater and all the waste, the sewage was being burned. The first month was difficult. It rained. A lot. The ground was like this baby powder on top of a layer of clay. And so it was just nasty, mucky, and the trenches would fill up. Rest was hard to come by. I was lucky to get... Literally 15 minutes of sleep a night. Chris had grown close to some of the other soldiers in the unit. There was Ainsworth Dyer. The two of them had trained together to compete in a military endurance competition. Every Friday was the long distance run day. The first Friday was 20K, the next Friday 25, and then we built up to a marathon by the time it was time to head over. And so we had this kind of camaraderie thing going together. Ainsworth was not a runner. This guy was built like a power lifter, but he could run with the marathon runners. He was just such an impressive individual and just such a good-humored, funny, funny guy. And then there was Richard Green, who went by Rick. Chris acted as a bit of a mentor to him. Rick was young, really young, just a good kid, like just a really solid, good person. I kind of wanted to protect him and kind of teach him my lessons learned so that maybe he didn't have to go through them the hard way kind of thing. He was very fond of his girlfriend and talked about buying her, you know, her engagement ring and everything like that. About two months into their deployment, Chris, Ainsworth, Rick, and others got to go to Dubai for some R&R. I have these, these very vivid memories of particularly Wild Wadi Water Park. And I remember Ainsworth and 
another another guy. They were on the the lovers kind of tube. They, it was built for two people, right? And so they were going down together. And you know, Ainsworth joking about something like he's got ten dollars shorts and nine bucks from her up his butt right now <laughs> because the water slide was so fast. You know, it was such a a fun day, not knowing what was going to happen two days later. In less than 48 hours, Chris, Ainsworth, and Rick would be in the middle of one of the most infamous episodes of the war. The incident at Tarnak Farms would leave four soldiers dead and eight others wounded. These were the first Canadian casualties in the war in Afghanistan. Tarnak Farms was the first deadly incident in a deadly war for Canada. It would change the lives of the men who were there forever and change how the Canadian military approaches battlefield medicine. The country collectively mourned the lives of the men who were lost there, but it was also the beginning of something else, of our turning away from the realities of war. So many more Canadians and Afghans would die in the war, but we would never mourn them in the same way again. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Bill Wilson admits that he may not have known exactly what he was getting into when he signed up to be a medic in the Canadian forces. He knew that he would be a witness to a lot of death. He just didn't think he would be able to remember it all so clearly, even years later. I have this innate unfortunate trait where I can probably, for some unfortunate reason, look back and I can picture most of the traumatic deaths or the the dead people. I can bring them back to memory fairly quickly. Bill enlisted in 1988. I grew up on a farm in Essex County here in southwestern Ontario, and I think my dad pretty much knew that farming wasn't going to be my business, so he told me to find something else to do, so I joined the military. And after basic training, he spent three years in Cold Lake, Alberta. I specifically remember the first dead body I saw was was in Cold Lake. It was a, a pilot that had ejected into the tree. It was headless, and it was pretty grotesque, but I, I, I've never forgotten it. His first tour was in Somalia, where he was witness to one of the darkest moments in the history of the Canadian military. In 1992, the Canadian Airborne Regiment was sent to the country as part of a peacekeeping mission. But today, it's best remembered for the abhorrent conduct of some of the Canadian soldiers. Another Canadian soldier is under investigation in the death of a Somalia man. He died last month at the peacekeeping compound in Bella Twain. Two unarmed Somalis were shot in the back and killed. And a 16-year-old boy, Shadane Aron, was tortured and killed by members of the regiment. Bill Wilson had been the medic on duty the night that happened. I was there when they, they bought the beaten uh, dead body of Shadane Aronian. 
That experience left him wondering if he had made the right decision joining the military. I really left Somalia second-guessing what I was in for, or what I had signed up for, really. Bill's faith was restored when he later deployed to Rwanda to help survivors of the 1994 genocide. We just did so much, so much for the people there that it just renewed my, I guess, my sense in what I was doing and my, my purpose, you know, my purpose in the Canadian military, my purpose as a medic, why I joined. And though he knew he was doing good work, death was always around the corner. One night, he heard a gunshot and got up to see what was happening. A Canadian soldier had shot himself. I remember going in the back of the ambulance and assessing him with the physician that was with us at the time. And, you know, he's up all day and packaging him up. But I remember when the, the doc was lifting him up and I could see the, just this big matter flap of hair that fell down. You know, those things they haven't left me. I'm not sure if they will ever leave me. Despite his expertise and experience, Bill often felt that other soldiers treated him and the other medics differently. In Somalia, it seemed as if the paratroopers were looking down on him. When you're the medic, there is some proving ground you have to do. You have to kind of stand on your own two feet and prove that you have soldier skills as well as medic skills because they're going to be looking at you. By 2001, Bill Wilson was a sergeant. He was confident, experienced, and was ready to deploy at a moment's notice to Afghanistan. After 9-11, it was a certainty that Canadian troops would support the Americans in Afghanistan. The only question was, what would that support look like? Towards the end of 2001, the decision was made in Ottawa to deploy in a battle group, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. That's Eugene Lang. He's the co-author of The Unexpected War, Canada and Kandahar and he served as chief of staff to two Canadian defense ministers during the war. And so was involved in all of the thinking and decision-making around Canada's various missions that we undertook in Afghanistan during that time period between about 2002 and early 2006. The Canadian military had been involved in a number of operations during the 90s, but those were all ostensibly peacekeeping missions. Afghanistan was an active war zone. Despite that, the public messaging still framed this as something like peacekeeping. And, you know, these governments tended to cling to this peacekeeping myth. So in a way, there was an attempt to sort of communicate some of these operations we undertook in Afghanistan as in that sort of context of peacekeeping or peace building or peacemaking. All these phrases were used, peace support operations. The PATs, as Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry are often called, were set to be deployed to Kandahar Airfield in February. About 800 soldiers into a base contained within that airfield was basically where they were located to work with the Americans and other countries that were there to clear the area, more or less. Uh, but by the time the Canadian forces got there, there really wasn't much fighting going on anymore. The so-called Taliban and or Al-Qaeda or however you want to describe the enemy, had either retreated across the uh, border into Pakistan or had kind of blended into the, um, into the local population. But the soldiers themselves didn't know what to expect. Chris Kopp, the infantryman, remembers being excited. I know exactly what I signed up for. I was not fooling myself. Oh my God, we 
are finally going to get to do what we joined to do. And that's go to war for our country. They all flew from Edmonton to Germany. And then from there, they loaded onto a C-17, an enormous military transport plane, and flew to Kandahar, Afghanistan. Chris remembers the moment they crossed into Afghan airspace. And as soon as you cross the border, the interior cabin lights, they go from white to red. And then they started cracking open a bunch of the, the ammo crates and handing it out. That's the time when you know, okay, this is, this is for real. Because that's never, <laughs> never happened before on a training mission or anything like that. And I remember very vividly just looking at all the infantry guys. They're all just like into it, you know, smiles on their face. You know, it's like, wow, this is real. There were no enemies waiting for them on the ground. Just the smell of burning shit and the press. And then getting off and going into the terminal and just the bright camera lights in your face kind of blinding you because it was such a big deal, the news agencies covering the Canadians landing. The arrival of the Pats was a major media event. Canada had already sent troops to Afghanistan, but it was the special forces, and everything they did was shrouded in secrecy. For most Canadians, this was the moment that Canada truly entered the war on terror. The first month was was strictly perimeter security, and so it was just shift work, on and off. Meanwhile, Bill was checking in on his medics, who were all working with different platoons. Every day, I would make my way out to their locations and just make sure that everybody was okay out there, and then coordinate with the unit medical station for resupply or anything like that. After a month, some of the Pats were sent out on their first operation in the field to hunt Al-Qaeda and Taliban forces that were suspected of hiding out in a cave complex. Bill felt like the other soldiers were eyeing him differently. I had this eerie feeling that we were being watched. You know, guys were wondering, you know, if I go down or if I get shot, you know, are these medics, are they going to be able to save my life? On the actual operation, they encountered minimal resistance. And then they were all back in Kandahar, waiting for whatever would come next. In April, a little more than two months into their deployment, the company was given the opportunity to get some r r in Dubai. Unlike Chris, Bill didn't feel the desire to go down water slides. I did not go to the water park, no. No, my, my, my R&R was fairly relaxing. I, I think I went to the mall a couple of times. I think I went to see a movie. I picked up a book. But for the most part, just kind of relaxed at the resort that they had us set up at. Bill didn't know it at the time, but it was the last bit of real rest he would get before everything changed. On April 17th, 2002, Two American pilots got into F-16s at Kuwait's Al-Jabbar Air Base. They were both part of the same uh, Air National Guard unit in uh, Springfield, Illinois. I'm Michael Friscalanti. I've been a journalist for 25 years. Michael wrote a book investigating the incident at the heart of this story. The two American pilots were very different men. Bill Umbach was a weekender. He did this part-time. He flew commercial jets uh, as his full-time job, but flew F-16s uh, and capacities as an Air National Guardsman. 
Harry Schmidt, on the other hand, was literally one of America's best fighter pilots. He was a former Top Gun instructor who had instructed at the Top Gun School in the Navy. Harry Schmidt had the call sign Psycho, a fact that escaped no one's notice in the months and years to come. When you look at their experience that they had, it was a huge gap in between them. Both both capable guys, but but Harry Schmidt was really sort of on the elite level, whereas Bill was not. Schmidt had been one of the pilots dropping bombs on Kosovo during the NATO intervention in 1999. He killed dozens, possibly even hundreds of people during that mission. And despite his extensive experience, on that April day, he wasn't the one in charge. Bill Umbach was assigned to take the lead. Harry Schmidt would be his wingman. Their mission was straightforward. Fly into Afghanistan, circle for a few hours just in case they were needed by ground forces, and then return to Kuwait. But it was going to be a long flight, so the Air Force provided the two pilots with go pills, or in other words, amphetamines. Schmidt and Umbach got into their F-16s and shot off to Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the Pats were getting ready for their own routine exercise. They were off to Tarnak Farms for some shooting drills. Tarnak Farms sits just a few kilometers outside of Kandahar, but it's a location with a bloody history. For years, it had been Osama bin Laden's home in Afghanistan. Mohammed Atta, one of the ringleaders of the 9-11 attacks, had trained there. But by 2002, bin Laden was long gone, and the old Al-Qaeda training ground was now being used by American and Canadian forces as a shooting range. Chris Kopp says that it was a little eerie to be hanging around a place that Osama bin Laden had called home just months ago. It was not lost on anybody. For sure, I think everybody realized just the surrealness the proximity, you know, in time space, for sure. It was such an iconic place and and location. As the rest of the company were practicing firing off weapons into the night, Bill, alongside his junior medics, Jean de la Bourdonnais and Vic Spears, were just relaxing. I was sitting in the front of the ambulance. Vic and Jean were in the back, just kind of hanging around the back of the ambulance. We like to We like to drink coffee at all hours of the day, even when it's a high of 40 degrees Celsius. And Jean was getting coffee shipped in from Canada, so we had a regular supply. So we would brew up whenever we could. They sip their coffee, work the radio, and talk to whoever came around. There was a couple of guys from the company that would come over and, and chat with us. Chris wasn't shooting that night. He was just hanging out with his buddies, Rick and Ainsworth, before they went up to practice. We were all laying down, and it's one of those crazy things, you know, you think about it. We're laying down literally in the dirt. We, we don't care. And I remember I was laying with Rick and Ainsworth, and there was a couple other guys there staring at the stars, and it was that, you know, that infantry philosophy talk. I think this was a little bit deeper one, like, uh, you know, something about the stars or, or, or something like that. It was one of those times, and then uh, it was their turn to, to go shoot. Chris began to nod off despite the gunfire around him. It's one of those other crazy infantry things. You know, I, I close my eyes and, and I probably did even fall asleep with a battle going off literally 100 meters away from me. As Chris got some shut-eye and Bill sipped coffee, Harry Schmidt and William Umbach, the two American F-16 pilots, were on their way back to Kuwait. They were flying over Kandahar, off their flight path, when they saw gunfire below them. Bill Umbach radioed in, saying that he believed that they were being shot at. 
they didn't know that there were Canadian forces holding a training exercise below them at Tarnak Farms. Harry Schmidt asked permission from Central Command to drop a bomb. He was denied. They needed more details. Bill Umbach told Harry that he should hold his fire. Quote, let's just make sure it's not friendlies. But Harry Schmidt saw more gunfire, and he began to descend altitude and said that he was rolling in self-defense. And then he drops a bomb. Few seconds later, he got a radio message. Be advised that there are friendlies in the area. Get out as soon as possible. But it was too late. A 500-pound laser-guided bomb was hurtling towards Chris, Bill, and all the other Canadian soldiers out at Tarnak Farm. Now, we debated about how many details to include about what happened next. We don't want to be gratuitous, but if we're going to tell this story, we felt it was important to not sanitize the reality of what happened that night. Bill and Chris were both candid with us about what they saw. In fact, even 20 years later, Bill says he remembers the blast clearly. And I remember jumping out of the ambulance and I remember, you know, just seeing this big cloud of smoke because the night was clear and I couldn't see the stars except for beyond the the cloud. And then I remember grabbing my med bag and I remember calling out to Vic and I said, let's go. And, uh, you know, I knew there was something bad was happening and we started hearing screaming for medics and we headed towards where the firing was. The explosion startled Chris awake. Then you hear the screams for, get the medics down here. And you're like, holy crap. And then you're wondering, well, what the heck hit us? There had been intel reports of a possible rocket launcher attack. Chris thought, maybe that's what hit us. I didn't know how far the firing line was away, but I knew I needed to go down and help. Even though he was infantry, Chris had significant first aid training. So he jumped in the ambulance with one of the medics to help out. Meanwhile, Bill and the other medic ran down towards the big ditch where the soldiers had been firing from. The first thing I, I saw was a, was a helmet. There was a helmet that was just on fire and it was just leading away. The camouflaging material that covered the helmet was fully ablaze. It was dark, but luckily the medics had some headlamps that they could use. You could see the grenades, almost like the, the tops were off of them. It was kind of a different weapons and magazines that were kind of just strewn around and we ran to a group of people i could see you know silhouettes of people standing and and bodies on the ground bill wilson had no idea what had happened it didn't really matter at the time it didn't really care it didn't really matter to me because that wasn't my job my job was saving as many lives as i could the first guy that I got to was Mark Leger, and um, someone was standing near him, and they had propped him up, and um, I was trying to find a pulse, and um, I could see that most of his, his abdominal cavity was opened up, and I had no pulse, and I just kind of let him go, realizing that his wounds were fairly mortal. He came across a corporal on the ground, but luckily he only had some burns. Bill looked around, and he saw Private Nathan Lloyd Smith. He was clearly dead. And then Vic and I were found ourselves kind of on either side of Ainsworth Dyer, and he 
that kind of had a blow the knee amputation. He had taken a couple of deep breaths and then he pretty much succumbed after that. I noticed that he had, had a big head wound and I'm not sure what I was thinking, but I had a couple of pressure bandages in my, in my hand and I was just applying them to the top of his head, but realizing that he was um, pretty much gone. When Chris arrived in the ambulance, he came across someone that he thinks was Bill, though Bill doesn't remember this part. Somebody who I thought was Bill said, Smith and Dyer are dead and Lorne is over there and he needs help. It hit me, you know, like a, like a Mack truck. Somebody telling you that your, your friends in your platoon are, are, are dead. Together, Chris and Bill and Jean, the junior medic, went to help another soldier who had been hit in the blast, Lorne Ford. I looked up at Lorne's face and I could see that there was blood running down from one of his eyes and he had suffered a wound to his eye. And Jean was trying to apply a lot of bandages to the, the back of his knee uh, where there was a big wound that just kept bleeding out. And I, I see Lorne and I see, you know, his eyes are closed, but there's like blood coming out of one of them. And he's got his, his hands clenched in fists and they're kind of towards the center of his chest and he's shaking a little bit. And then I see his leg and his leg has got this huge hole in it on the the inside of the thigh. Massive. I could fit two fists inside of it. Chris thought Lorne was just about dead. He asked him if he could hear him, not expecting an answer. And he says yes. And I was like completely surprised because it rewrote my assumptions. I'm like, oh my God, he is, he's salvageable. We can stop this bleeding and we're going to save Lorne. The wound on Lorne's leg was bleeding profusely, and he was coming in and out of consciousness. Bill, Chris, and Jean tried to do what they could to save his life. The four or five pressure dressings that they had applied just weren't stopping the bleeding. And I'm like, let's put the tourniquet on his leg. And back then, the tourniquet training was non-existent. It was like, don't put a tourniquet on. Last resort. But Bill felt like they had no other option. We had one of those old-fashioned tourniquets we used for starting IVs, so I told him to go ahead. And I remember Jean just reefing on that thing. I don't know how that plastic buckle did not break. It did the trick because we were able to save Lauren's leg and save his life. I can hear in the background they're saying we're still missing people. We're not everybody's accounted for. I turn around and come back, and as soon as I turn around, you know, I see the scene. There's a couple little headlights going on and just all the the chaos. And the reality of what was happening kind of hit me, started to to overcome me, and I said, oh, no. And so I just remember just pushing it down, just pushing it really, really deep down. The helicopters arrived, and they started to load the wounded onto them. And then the chopper took off. And uh, left Vic and I. Vic and I stayed around. Then came one of the most gruesome parts of the job, tagging the locations where the dead lay. We found uh, Private Green's, pretty much his torso, more more or less his pelvic bone. It was Chris Kopp who kind of led me to that direction. The company had started to kind of fan out with glow sticks, and they were marking everywhere they had found a piece of shrapnel or, or a piece of human tissue. I remember coming across Rick. And Rick was, 
the closest to the blast. And uh, we covered Rick up, marked him with glow sticks. During the chaos, you know, they kept coming up to us and saying, hey, there's a dead body over there. We eventually covered up the remains and then, I guess, waited. And I remember looking up and back towards where the, the blast was. And there was just this, it was literally a cone of, of glow sticks from all the debris and the pieces that, that everybody was marking. When Chris returned to the base, he heard a soldier from another company talking about what had just happened. I heard him say, like legitimately, that he didn't sign up for this. I just thought to myself, I'm like, dude, this is exactly what you signed up for. What are you talking about? I didn't say it, but I just shook my head. I'm like, that guy is not in the right mindset. Bill and Vic, the junior medic, stayed behind at Tarnak Farms. They smoked every cigarette they could find and talked. Within that time, Vic and I had some time to sit back and just replay everything that had happened from the get-go, what we did and what we saw and what we could have done better. When they returned to the base with their dead in tow, there was one more horrible task ahead of Bill. You know, I basically got told that I had to open up the body bags up and identify who was in or what remains were in the body bags. So that was uh, hard, hard to do. And then, mercifully... It was over. I just basically headed to my rack and and slept and slept and slept. On their flight back to Kuwait, Schmidt and Umbach, the two F-16 pilots, didn't know what they had done. It was only when they landed that they were informed that they had bombed a Canadian training exercise. And it wouldn't be long before it became clear just how much damage they had inflicted. They'd killed four Canadian soldiers. Corporal Ainsworth Dyer, Sergeant Mark Leger, Private Richard Green, and Private Nathan Lloyd Smith. And they had injured eight others, some of them severely. The killings were a shock to Canadians. Michael Friscolanti was a young reporter at the National Post at the time. I do remember just how large it felt and how shocked the country was that we had lost soldiers in a war zone. It had been a long time since we'd lost the soldiers in a combat zone. I think it really brought home The fact that we were in Afghanistan and that our soldiers were there in harm's way, it really opened the door to that. The four dead soldiers and their family members were treated as heroes. You know, it was overwhelming, the outpouring of support, the outpouring of emotion from Canadians when the bodies were returned home to CFB Trenton. It was a massive event. I mean, the whole country was in mourning. Prime Minister Jean Chrétien attended the repatriation ceremony at CFB Trenton. The Governor-General, Adrian Clarkson, visited the wounded and attended Ainsworth Dyer's funeral in Toronto. And more than 16,000 people joined a memorial service held in Edmonton. There were widows left behind. There were parents left behind. I remember, you know, it sticks out, Nathan Smith's father had built a memorial on his property in uh, Nova Scotia. And when I went to visit him there more than a year after, it was still there and he was very proud of it. And it was something that gave him some comfort. I think of Sergeant Leger's wife at the time, Marley. She kind of became the public face of the grieving families because she heroically stood in her driveway and holding a picture of him and talking about him and the kind of person he was the morning that we all found out that uh, he had died. They all stick out to me because they all had to deal with this horrible thing. And not just that they didn't just have to deal with the deaths of their loved ones, but they had to deal with the fact that this was a national story for many weeks. It was the biggest story in the country. And they had to deal with the fact that it became a, an investigation and a trial and a very public trial. 
the investigations into what happened started immediately. The interesting thing of what happened here is there were two separate investigations. The Department of National Defense in Canada wanted to do their own investigation into what happened. And of course, the, uh, the military in the United States did their own investigation. But both of the initial investigations came to the very same conclusion. Which is that the pilots showed a reckless disregard for the rules of engagement and dropped a bomb when they should have waited. You know, I wasn't in the cockpit and nobody else was. And so I don't want to say that, that I know the answer to this, but the investigators concluded that the pilots should have known better. They did know that there were friendlies all over that region. There, We had coalition forces all over the Kandahar area. And they should have waited to get some more confirmation of what was down there, that they weren't in any imminent danger. And there was no need to, quote, roll in in self-defense as, uh, as Major Schmidt did. The board found the cause of the friendly fire incident to be the failure of the two pilots to exercise appropriate flight discipline, which resulted in a violation of the rules of engagement and inappropriate use of lethal force. The conclusion from these investigations led the military to do something that they hadn't done since World War II, like serious criminal charges against the two pilots for their involvement in the friendly fire incident. Both Harry Schmidt and Bill Umbach were charged with four counts of negligent homicide, eight counts of aggravated assault, and a count each of dereliction of duty. If convicted, they faced decades in prison. They were charged on September 11th, 2002. That was so angering to so many Americans for obvious reasons. They felt, how could you pick this day to charge these two guys who were in combat, were there because of 9-11? Americans rallied behind the two pilots. Some Americans who were watching were thinking, you know, why are we prosecuting two of our own, two of our best pilots? And why would they deserve this? There was uh, fundraisers held for these guys. There were t-shirts that were for sale, support, don't prosecute our pilots. There were uh, beer cozies you could buy, support, don't prosecute our pilots. Before they could be court-martialed, the pilots had to go through an Article 32 hearing the U.S. military equivalent of a preliminary hearing where a judge would recommend whether or not there was enough evidence to move forward with the prosecution. Michael Friscolanti covered the proceedings, and he says that they were a media spectacle. You know, there was two kind of defenses happening at the same time. You had what was happening in, in the legal proceeding and in the, and in the Article 32 to come, but you also had what was happening in the media. And there was lots of leaks coming from various parties uh, about different things that sort of raised doubt in people's minds. Their lawyers argued that the amphetamines that the Air Force provided them addled their judgment. They argued that the friendly fire, or fratricide as it's known in military lingo, was a result of a breakdown of command and control. And therefore, it wasn't the pilot's fault. And most of all, the lawyers invoked the pilot's right to self-defense. If you look at the HUD tapes, if you listen to the recordings of what they were saying to each other and put yourself in their cockpits, at least Harry Schmidt's cockpit, he believed that he was under attack, that him, he and his uh, flight lead could have potentially been shot down that night, and they had to react. But while all of this was playing out, the public and the families of the men that Harry Schmidt and Bill Umbach had killed still hadn't heard from them. Some family members said that all they wanted was an apology. Shortly before the judge came out with his recommendations, Schmidt and Umbach both went in front of cameras to address the families of the men that they had killed. And they both stood up and apologized to the families. And what I will never forget is how different the apologies were. And that is, that is the absolute truth. Bill Umbach stood up and just wanted to tell the families how sorry he was for what happened 
and how it's a thing he thinks about and is a nightmare for him every day of his life, that he thinks about those four men. He named those four men, if I recall correctly. And it was emotional to watch. That Harry Schmidt, the Top Gun pilot, who had actually dropped the bomb, took a different approach. He wanted to do a very detailed walkthrough of why he turned his jet a certain way, why he made a decision he did at a certain point during the uh, the incident. And as the family members said after, it just didn't ring anywhere as true as Bill Umbach. This, I think, was really the most important thing for them. They weren't looking for blood. They weren't looking for a severe punishment. They were looking for some sense of remorse and some genuine apology. And as the family members said themselves, they got it that day from Bill Umbach, and they, and they appreciated it. And they said they didn't get that from Harry Schmidt. By the time the judge decided on his recommendations, the war in Afghanistan was no longer front-page news. The war in Iraq was just beginning, and Canada had just declined to support the invasion. Just days after that, the judge put out his recommendations in a terse press release. He wouldn't be recommending homicide or assault charges against Schmidt and Umbach, largely because other American F-16 pilots refused to say that they would have acted any differently. And that was enough for the judge to say, you know what, this probably isn't going to succeed at court-martial, and we probably shouldn't go through with it. William Umbach was reprimanded by the military, but allowed to retire. Harry Schmidt eventually agreed to a hearing in front of a superior officer. He was found guilty of dereliction of duty, fined, and issued a scathing reprimand. Quote, you acted shamelessly on the 17th of April, 2002, over Tarnak Farms, Afghanistan exhibiting arrogance and a lack of flight discipline. I do not believe you acted in defense of Major Umbacker yourself. Your actions indicate that you used your self-defense declaration as a pretext to strike a target which you rashly decided was an enemy firing position and about which you had exhausted your patience in waiting for clearance. You used the inherent right of self-defense as an excuse to wage your own war. But surprisingly, when Chris Kopp thinks back to the man who killed his friends, he doesn't really blame him. What he should have did was turn and burn, and what he did was dive into the threat envelope further. At the end of the day, did he go against policy? He did. Do I think he was cavalier? I, I think he probably was. Do I hold any of it against him? Man, it's, it's not my position to, to do that. But there's something that still irks Bill Wilson about all of this. He doesn't think that the work that he, the other medics, and Chris did that night to save lives has ever really been fully acknowledged. They were given commendations by the military, but they were basically some of the lowest ones that you can get. When we got back, I don't think we should have done this, but we started looking up to see what other people who got the same commendation that we got, what they did for that. And someone got the same decoration for setting up a parade. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't know what to say. I, I beat myself up over it. I wanted more for my guys. It is what it is. Will it ever change? I'm not sure. During the investigations and hearings, Harry Schmidt and Bill Umbach were treated as heroes by much of the American public, despite the fact that they had killed Allied soldiers. Meanwhile, in Canada, the medics who saved lives were given the same recognition as someone who organized a parade. Both Chris and Bill took their experiences at Tarnak Farms and made something of it. 
Today, Chris runs a company that focuses on tactical medicine. The friendly fire incident, I think, was the catalyst that really spurred the, the creation of a tactical approach to, to casualty care in the Canadian forces. And Bill and the other medics who were there that night helped design a training course that has shaped how the Canadian forces deal with battlefield medicine. We designed the first tactical combat casualty course, you know, built on that deployment. Ainsworth Dyer, Mark Leger, Richard Green, and Nathan Lloyd-Smith were the first four Canadian soldiers to die in Afghanistan. But 154 more would perish there, and their deaths would be treated far differently. These deaths received such scrutiny and such attention for obvious reasons, because they were killed by allies, because there was a trial, because there was lots of attention paid to it. But what always saddened me in some way was that the many casualties that came after didn't receive as much attention as these did. Their lives were publicized. They were paid tribute to by Canadians. The Highway of Heroes coming home to Trenton. I wondered too that we just became immune to the fact that our soldiers were coming home in caskets at CFP Trenton. It became something that we were used to. It made political sense for the Canadian government to treat these four men as martyrs. But when dozens and dozens of soldiers began to be grievously wounded and killed as the war raged on, there were few grand funerals. In 2006, the government even stopped lowering the flag when soldiers died in Afghanistan. And Canadians were far from the only victims of accidental killings by bombs in Afghanistan. In July of 2002, just months after Tarnak Farms, an American AC-130 gunship believed that it was coming under fire and dropped a bomb in self-defense. It had been an Afghan wedding with people firing guns into the air to celebrate. More than 100 innocent Afghans were killed. And like in almost every other similar incident in the war in Afghanistan, no charges were laid. Bill still thinks about the men who died that day on the range. He remembers it all so clearly, just like the other deaths he's seen. Recently, Bill, Chris, and others from their former company gathered back in Edmonton to recognize the 20th anniversary of Tarnak Farms. And Bill got to see Lorne Ford, the man that he and Chris had saved. I look at that, and all that that came out of there, I'm like, here's a guy that's living his life. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that feel guilt over that, you know, how come I'm alive and that guy's dead? As far as I'm concerned, when I think about that kind of stuff, it's our job for those that survive to go on and live our lives to the best or the fullest that we can, because those guys will never have that opportunity. So seeing guys like Lauren Ford that are, are living their lives, it's just an awesome feeling, really, to know that, you know, we were able to get him airlifted out of there in time and into surgery under an hour, I think is pretty remarkable. And we made it happen. I'm grateful with the two guys that I had and we were able to respond and, and save Lauren's life. Unfortunately, we couldn't save anymore.
that's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. Right now, we have a special offer for our listeners. Get all of Canadaland's podcasts ad-free for three months for only $3. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canadaland's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench for only $2.99 a month, and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Michael Friscolanti, Stephen Thorne, Ted Barris, Garth Pritchard, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.